Anna arrived for her first therapy session, wearing her pleasant smile. I asked her how she'd been, and she began to weep, telling me all the intrusive thoughts she had. I could tell she was expecting me to negate them and to discuss them with her from a rational perspective. Instead, I listened intently until she could not think of any more. I asked her about her family, and then, how's your little brother been this week? Oh, he's been like usual. Well, what sort of things has he said to you? I asked, trying not to sound overly interested in any particular answer. Oh, he, he uses bad language. Really? Like what? Again, as if I were asking about the weather. Anna rolled her eyes and said, Things like pig and fatso. He says those things to me. I said, that's all? I bet he says worse than madam. Am I right? And I hesitated and looked down at the floor. I told her, you know, it's okay. You can say it out loud, Anna. After all, he's the one who said it, right? She nodded and said softly, cautiously, Sometimes he says, crap. I could hear her throat tighten as she said this. She pursed her lips, squeezed her knees together. She was holding her breath. She was the picture of contraction. I'm sorry, Anna, I couldn't hear you. Would you say that word louder? As if summoning up her strength, she sat upright and said, crap. Welcome to In Contact with the ACO. I'm Dr. Chris Burrett. This presentation features the care of a patient by one of the ACO doctors who practices a different kind of psychiatry. There is a new case presented live each month at the ACO campus near Princeton, New Jersey. These are real patients, but their privacy is protected. Each podcast episode is from the recording of one of these presentations. If you're interested in attending, you can meet the doctors and join in on the discussion afterwards. You can connect with us and learn more at adifferentkindofpsychiatry.com or ergonomy.org. In this episode, you'll hear about the treatment of a young girl named Anna who was terribly afraid, but she wasn't crazy. received a desperate call from a mother who said, My nine-year-old daughter is having a nervous breakdown. She's having crazy thoughts at night that we're going to kill her and that terrorists are going to come into her bedroom through the window. She even has crazy thoughts that her father may harm her. I'm afraid she's going insane. Whew. Psychosis at any age is a horrible thing. Psychosis in a nine-year-old is horrific. So I took a deep breath to try to calm myself, rather like I'm doing right now, and made an appointment for the child's parents to come to my office the next day as part of the first part uh, of an evaluation. Anna was a nine-year-old, no, actually almost ten. She was a nine-year-old, second-generation Italian-American girl. The middle child, as well as the only girl in the family, she had always been the family's pride and joy. Her grades in school were always excellent, as was her behavior. 
In the last three months, however, she developed intrusive thoughts in the evening, which interfered with her sleep. Increasingly, these thoughts also bothered her during the day, making it difficult for her to concentrate on her work. She did not tell her teachers about them, but confided only in her parents. They sat with her night after night and tried to talk it out with her, and also tried to talk it out of her, I think, showing her the irrationality of her thinking. Of course murderers are not going to come into your room. How could you think your father would come into your room at night and stab you to death? When this approach was unsuccessful, the mother tried to be stern with the child, telling her that she must stop having these thoughts. That did not work either. The father tried to be sympathetic over how much his daughter suffered with these thoughts, but was reduced to tears by his inability to alter them and help his little girl. He also felt hurt that she thought of him in such horrific terms, which in turn made Anna feel more guilty. At night, Anna came down from her bedroom, complaining of the same frightening thoughts, which then began taking on new life. That is, they began to expand to other thoughts involving similar themes that were even more terrible and gruesome for her to contemplate and for her parents to hear. She told her parents she knew the thoughts could not be true, but then would say, but couldn't they be true? I read about these things online every day. Anna cried and sobbed as her parents looked on helplessly. She tried to go to sleep on her own, but could not stay in her room for long without coming downstairs, crying, telling her parents she was terrified. Anna's mother stayed with her daughter each night in the daughter's bed until the child fell asleep. The strain of dealing with Anna's nightly intrusive thoughts was beginning to wear on the parents, and they teetered between panic and anger, not knowing what to do. The parents consulted the child's pediatrician, she gave Anna a full physical exam and did extensive blood work, including a Lyme titer, to rule out any possible organic cause for the child's symptoms. All results came back normal. The pediatrician then recommended that Anna see a psychologist. The child told the psychologist her fears and crazy thoughts in great detail. A number of techniques were tried, including, the parents told me later, having Anna and the psychologist write down all of Anna's thoughts on a piece of paper, placing the paper in a bowl, and then lighting the paper on fire. Anna was told that now her thoughts would all disappear. And they did, for about 24 hours after they were incinerated. Thereafter, they returned with a vengeance, becoming more frightening and bizarre. The psychologist told the parents that while she initially had felt that Anna's symptoms were from an anxiety disorder. She now worried that the child might have an underlying psychotic disorder requiring psychiatric evaluation, possible treatment with antipsychotic medication, possible hospitalization. And she recommended that Anna be taken to a psychiatrist. I met with the parents first without the child present. My impression of Anna's mother was that she was kind, but with a sort of edge of moralism and propriety about her. She said, well, she shouldn't be feeling such things. She was by now less sympathetic toward her daughter's struggle than I would have liked, 
tending toward wanting to tell the girl, just knock it off, which didn't work. The father, on the other hand, had a great deal of empathy for his daughter. Distraught, he told me, she's always a good girl, always, always my good girl. She never disappoints anyone. And then he wiped the tears from his eyes. He struck me as a decent fellow who had come to this country from Italy, struggled, opened a restaurant, worked hard, achieved the American dream, and put all his energies into caring for his family and their well-being. Now he was faced with a situation where he was utterly helpless, unable to find a solution. Torture for him. A review of Anna's history showed normal developmental milestones. Her birth was accomplished without medication, and she was breastfed, breastfed until two years of age. She had always been well-behaved and socially interactive, had many friends, and was always a good student. Medical history was unremarkable. She had begun having her period six months before her intrusive thoughts began. I met with Anna the next day. She entered the treatment room, shook my hand politely, giving me an anxious smile. I almost thought she was going to curtsy. Her shoulders were a bit rounded, posture rather slouched, like she wanted to hide. Anna sat down and smiled at me in a timid and sweet way that was incongruous with all I'd heard about her frightening thoughts. She recounted for me the content of her distressing, intrusive thoughts, fearing that her father might suddenly come in the night and stab her to death. Terrorists might come in her room and take her away. She clarified that these were all thoughts that came to her at night largely when she first got into bed. She said she never had actual dreams about any of this. She teared up a bit as she described how her father must feel when she told him of her fears about him. Her eyes looked clear and eye contact was good. Her thinking was coherent to the point and showed no evidence of disorganization. She denied any feeling of anxiety in her life unless it was, of course, as she put it, her crazy thoughts. I noted that her respiration was shallow as she talked. I carefully asked about anyone touching her inappropriately. She scoffed, oh, no way. Then I asked if there was anyone she was angry or upset with in her life. There was no one, she said, hesitating. And I waited. Well, almost no one, she said softly, looking away from me. I queried her further, and she admitted that her little brother, one year her junior, was, as she put it, not very nice. Then she said, he bugs me and teases me all the time. And he's kind of spoiled, too. Again, she looked away from me, eyes cast downward. I remembered that the brother was the youngest child in this Italian-American family. I asked what sort of things he said to her. Oh, I couldn't even say what he says. It's, it's, so, it's so bad. I said, I'll bet he makes you angry. Oh, yes, he really, he really does. I ended the session by telling her that I thought I could help her, that she was not an awful person for having the thoughts she had. I told her that everyone has thoughts of many different kinds, and they have no control over that. People can't help what they feel or think, only what they do. 
I wanted to alleviate the guilt she was feeling about her situation. I also wanted to immediately counter the shame she felt, propagated by her mother's rebukes about her thoughts. She now looked a little relieved, her breathing less inhibited, and thanked me politely and left the room. The next day I met again with her parents, and I told them, Your daughter is quite treatable, and I don't think we'll need to use medication. They both audibly sighed with relief, which I think they both needed. But I told them it might take several months or more of treatment. In the meantime, I had some suggestions for them that would help Anna get better. I told the mother she must stop telling Anna that she shouldn't feel or think these things, as that strategy clearly wasn't working. She nodded her head dutifully. I did not tell the mother that making Anna feel guilty was only making her suffer more, and actually this suffering was becoming a further distraction from her real feelings. Instead, I directed her to listen fully to everything her daughter described, no matter how awful or bizarre it seemed, and when the girl was done, she was to ask if there was any more, and listen again without comment, judgment, or trying to explain to the child why her thoughts were irrational. If Anna needed to stay until she fell asleep, needed mom to stay, she was to do it. I acknowledged that this was going to be a lot of work, but that it was necessary and worth the effort. Both parents nodded assent, with the father telling me, well, at least now we have a plan and some hope. Anna arrived for her first therapy session, wearing her pleasant smile. She came in and sat in a chair. I asked her how she'd been, and she began to weep, telling me all the intrusive thoughts she'd had. I could tell she was expecting me to negate them and to discuss them with her from a rational perspective. Instead, I listened intently until she could not think of any more. I asked her about her family, and then... How's your little brother been this week? Oh, he's been like usual. Well, what sort of things has he said to you? I asked, trying not to sound overly interested in any particular answer. Oh, he he uses bad language. Really? Like what? Again, as if I were asking about the weather. Anna rolled her eyes and said, Things like pig and fatso. He says those things to me. I said, that's all? I'll bet he says worse than that. Am am I right? And I hesitated and looked down at the floor. I told her, you know, it's okay. You can say it out loud, Anna. After all, he's the one who said it, right? She nodded and said softly, cautiously, sometimes he says I could hear her throat tighten as she said this. She pursed her lips and squeezed her knees together. She was holding her breath. She was the picture of contraction. I'm sorry, Anna, I couldn't hear you. Could you say that word louder? As if, as if summoning up her strength, she sat upright and said, Crap! Here I see that I have an exclamation point after that word, but it was really more like a rather small exclamation point. <laughs> I asked her if she could say it a bit louder still, as her brother might do. Again, she said, crap, but 
louder, a bigger exclamation point. Then she giggled a little, put her hand to her mouth, trying to stifle it. I saw that her breathing was fuller now. I also noted that she was looking at me more directly, without looking away. I smiled at her, told her we'd stop the session there and that I'd see her next week. As she left the session, I saw that her shoulders were less rounded and her posture better. At the next session, I asked her about her brother. Again. Without hesitation, she said, well, he said crap a lot. I noticed she seemed to be enjoying saying the word, though I knew that if I pointed this out to her, it would just make her self-conscious. I asked her again to say it louder, and with a big smile, she yelled, Crap! I just nodded, showing no disapproval. The next few sessions were similar to the first two, except that bit by bit, Anna told me other bad words her brother said. He says, Bitch! And shit! I encouraged her to say them louder, and she did so with obvious enjoyment. Her breathing became fuller each time, she smiled more, and her gait showed less awkwardness. At the end of one session, I saw that although she was enjoying saying those words out loud, she had some anxiety about it. So I told her, of course, I'm not suggesting you yell such things at anyone outside my office, but it's okay for you to get it out here. This was essentially giving her tacit approval to express her anger in sessions. Smiling, she nodded seriously, indicating that she understood. By this point, Anna's mother told me that the nightly thoughts were still present, but both she and her husband were noticing that after Anna described her thoughts to them, she began to calm. Anna still wanted her mother to stay with her until she fell asleep, but she was not as overwrought at bedtime. Now Anna's sessions all began with her telling me about her little brother's bad behaviors. By the third month of treatment, I finally asked Anna if she ever got angry at him. Yes, but I'm older and I shouldn't get mad. He's younger. And I wondered how many times she'd been told that at home. Again, I heard her throat tightening and I saw her respiration being held in inspiration like this. Oh, do you, but do you get mad at him sometimes, I asked. She nodded, looking down. I imagined her at church in confession, admitting this as one of her sins. Do you ever feel like saying something back to him, I asked her. Anna waited a moment and then said quietly, I'd like to tell him to shut up. She looked away from me and then downward, as I'd seen her do before. Could you say that a little louder, Anna? Shut up. Can you say that even louder? Shut up! She was breathing more fully now, leaning, for, leaning forward a bit in her chair. She even looked almost exhilarated. I said, oh good, let's say it again. Anna shouted with firmness, shut up, shut up, shut up! And then gathering steam, shut up you little crap! <laughs> Now she did look exhilarated. <laughs> then she sat back down in her chair, spent. Smiling, she looked up at me and said, That felt good. <laughs> at the next session, I asked, Do you ever feel like doing anything when he talks to you like that? I mean, not that you would, of course. But do you ever feel like it? 
I purposefully kept my questions hypothetical, but she knew exactly what I was talking about. Yeah, I'd like to smack him. She looked with, at me with uncertainty as if to say, is that all right? I stood up, grabbed the bolster, a big pillow, held it up and said, good, you go right ahead. She jumped up from the chair, made a fist, and then tentatively tapped the bolster a few times. I said, that's it? She hit it harder and spontaneously yelled, shut up, you little shit! The color rose in her face and her breathing was full. She walked out of the session looking somehow taller and more aggressive than I'd ever seen her before, and I thought to myself, the brother better watch out. <laughs> a week later, I again met with Anna's parents. They noted her intrusive thoughts were all but gone, with perhaps a few being voiced several nights of the week. Anna told her parents about these, as always, but then would say, it's okay, I can handle these. You don't need to stay up with me, Mom. The mother also commented, rather disapprovingly, that Anna was getting angry at her little brother more often, even yelling at him. The mother noted with pride that her son was just a little pistol. The mother also noted that Anna was asserting herself more in general, which she thought was probably good, though Anna was just not as cooperative as she'd been before she started therapy. When questioned further about this, the mother made it clear that other than herself, no one really at school or in the home seemed to mind it. I told the mother it was better for Anna to be able to assert herself and not be the good girl all the time, always having to put aside her own feelings to please everybody else. This struck a chord with the mother, who said she'd always been that way herself when she grew up, was growing up. Some discussion then with Anna's mother about her own experiences helped the mother be more aware and tolerant of her daughter's struggles to speak up and assert herself. For two more months, Anna enjoyed screaming at her brother and hitting him, in the sessions, hitting him. She began to take responsibility for her sessions. She'd walk into my office confidently and say, I've got a lot I was angry about this week. Pick that bolster up. I want to hit. And I thought, yes, ma'am. And hit she did, her facial expression contorting more into one of anger, her yelling louder and more intense. When she felt she'd gotten enough out, she sat down and said, okay, let's talk a bit. And then she'd tell me about her week, her feelings, her thoughts, her ideas. As these two months progressed, the parents reported that Anna's intrusive thoughts were gone no longer present during the day or during the night. I continued to see Anna for another month to be sure they stayed gone. At the last session, Anna thanked me and said, I don't understand how I got better. And I told her, maybe you just needed to get your anger out. She was quiet for a moment, again looked me straight in the eye, and nodded her head with a certain seriousness, as if she just had a revelation. Yes, I understand. I see, she said. And I knew she did. <clears throat> a year later, I stopped in Anna's father's pizzeria to get a slice to go. Before I could order from the waitress, he came out from the kitchen and shook hands with me. He told me Anna was happy and doing well socially and in school. 
She had none of the symptoms she had shown 18 months before. He turned and opened the pizza oven, took out two slices and put them in front of me. I reached into my pocket and pulled out some cash, but he said, No, no, I'm a very happy man. You enjoy your pizza. <laughs> and I did. <laughs> I just think it's exciting what you can do with children mm. and just sad to think what could happen to her if she'd been put on psychotropic drugs, you yeah. know, traditional mechanistic way of put her in a box, whatever. I think if she'd been put on medication, it would have completely cut her off from her emotions, which, which she was already doing with these thoughts. It would have ruined things. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah. That's yeah. Why did you choose not to talk to the parents about the little boy's behavior or to guide them into confronting his behavior? Because she was handling it herself. Okay, and that's... And, and effectively. Yeah. And, you, you know, you need parents' cooperation with you. And in this family, you know, the youngest boy... But the little bambino, this is the, the prince. Okay. And so one has to be careful about where you step. But if she couldn't handle it and rise to the occasion, I would have. Mm -hmm. It's a great question. So there were three children? Yeah. And the first one was a girl? No. The youngest the one was the boy. Oh, the youngest. My patient was the girl in the middle. In the middle. The older one was a, a boy. Okay. okay. Yeah. So a boy, right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that sound like it was very helpful was how um, cooperative the parents were in working uh, with you. Um, and one of the things that I wondered about is um, uh, how did you get them to uh, allow Anna to stay the last couple of months after the symptoms died down. Um, a lot of times I had experience with families that as soon as a symptom went away, they were out the door and they mm -hmm. didn't want to... Well, I told them that it was too quick and what we needed was for her lack of symptoms to become boringly familiar in all their lives. Mm -hmm. um, security. Plus, you know, terrified. Mm -hmm. And uh, they treated me as an authority who should be listened to, and I didn't have much trouble with them. Mm -hmm. I thought I would with the mother. Um, but mm -hmm. I think pointing out to her, or rather her realizing how she'd been raised in her family in the old country mm -hmm. as the girl in the family, and all of that, she got it. They were both from Italy? Yeah. Oh. Uh, I don't want to get anybody upset. They were both from Sicily, which is Italy. <laughs> yeah. But I think that cooperation that you got with the mother was crucial. Yeah. And great, very crucial. And the other thing is what you just said, is that they, they respected authority. So in that sense, their relationship with authority was simple. They're not rebellious yeah. types. Yeah. Just simple, straightforward. Yeah. 
That's correct. Respect and, and take your authority yeah. seriously, mm -hmm. which is much easier to work with than permissive type parents. Mm -hmm. I agree. And I think going along with that, though, you were also male. That would command authority that she was used to, that possibly, not to put you down in any way, I'm just saying mm -hmm. that's could have been a less effective thing that you've come across is you don't have the authority that a male has in an old school person like yeah. me, someone who grew up where men well, are authorities, doctors are authorities. Uh, it didn't hurt. <laughs> um, but the parents sound like they were pretty, uh, uh, if not if not healthy, it, it integrated and uh, sensible. Um, uh, yeah. As opposed to some of the families that come in that are chaotic with parents who are highly, highly anxious and. Uh, yeah. Well, they were highly anxious and frightened, but this was a family where everything was like this, regimented, and everything had gone fine, fine up till now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I think also because they came from Europe, it's different than our culture. You know, there's still a certain structure in Europe than there is here. Mm -hmm. um, That's kind of what I was referencing. Mm -hmm. That's the other thing that struck me is that they they were simple people. I don't mean simple and unintelligent, mm -hmm. but not complicated. So mm -hmm. what you see is what you get. You know, if there's repression, there's repression. That's right. And so that's much easier to work with. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm particularly interested in um, my daughter's dealing with my granddaughter who's 9, 10, 10 going on 11. Mm -hmm. She doesn't have her period yet, but she does, is in the beginning stages of puberty. And um, she's always been very high strung and somewhat hyper. Um, she no longer has, she has attention deficit, but no longer the hyperactivity. But what I'm would like to know is how can my daughter help her? It's the same thing, the anxiety at night, the, um, burglars are coming in. She needs to either typically sleeps on the floor. My daughter is single now, she left her husband, but the daughter is normally on a nest on the floor, so she's not in bed with my daughter, but it is really disturbing. It can take hours, two hours, three hours, until she can calm down and get to sleep. So. In some respect, I know I can't deal with it effectively, but is there something that my daughter can do to be helpful? I'd love to drag her to you, obviously, but is there any intervention you can suggest? I, I don't know the child, and I don't know quite okay, how right. she is. However, the first thing to look at, I think, when you're treating any child is when there's this aberrant behavior that's causing problems for other people, what's the function of it? And what is it trying to, uh, what did it have to do with what was going on with her? Anybody have any idea of all these thoughts that were described as to what that might have to do with her in terms of her own uh, dynamics, and what was going on with her? Anything jump out or? You can't speak up. What? You, you, I don't, you can't no, no, I'm not going to say anything. <laughs> Well, Are you talking about case or this case? Your, uh, this, this case. case, yeah. Okay. Because you know, if 
if you would just, if one would have just looked at the symptoms, I mean, besides the fact that she wasn't disorganized and she wasn't schizophrenic, she wasn't psychotic, but if you would have just looked at it, it sounds on the face of it really nuts. And so what were they about? See, I, you know, first of all, she, to me, she got her period pretty early. She was prepubescent, pubescent. And I wonder if some of that anxiety was orgastic anxiety. I think uh, certainly the fact that she'd just uh, begun to have her, um, her menses. My teenage daughter says I can't use the word menses. Nobody will know what that is. <laughs> she just started her period. <laughs> um, I think certainly charged everything up a lot, a lot. But I think an awful lot of these thoughts were um, projections of her rage and her anger, uh, perhaps at the father for the fact that, yes, I love you, but you have to be just perfect. I don't think she had any awareness of that, and I'm not sure me spelling it out would have helped her. But certainly at her little brother, here she is, her body is starting to change, she's going through puberty, and he's calling her fat and saying this kind of stuff, but you're not supposed to touch the little brother because he's, he's a little pistolo, you know? And so she, I mean, she was talking about terrorists coming in. Now, yes, this stuff is in, in the news, but he was terrorizing her relentlessly. So it, but she wasn't allowed to come out with it. Boom. So it came out like this. So in answer to your question, I don't know what your granddaughter is responding to in that way. I, I don't know what's going on with her. But well, something she did tell is. her mommy she saw someone kissing and she got tingly down there. So I think her mother's trying to deal with her fact that she's having sexual feelings now and this is new to her. So and I guess that's where I was seeing the connection yeah, with the puberty and yes. this. And but what is why is she having why is she afraid to go to bed? What what's that about? Is okay. she afraid that there are, you know, monsters under the bed or in the closet? Um, so you know, when people lie down at the end of the day and they get ready for bed and they relax, they often feel, they feel lots of things. And it, this young woman said that it starts when I get into bed and I lay down. It wasn't going on in school. I mean, it started to leak over into it. But um, now, if you're, I see, again, not knowing the child, but if you're, a granddaughter turned around and, and said, uh, listen, you're just afraid of this because you're having sexual feelings and you're afraid of them and this is, that would be disastrous. Yeah. Yeah. So I think the first thing would be to have some clue as to perhaps what was going on uh, and to be perhaps a little bit more tolerant, certainly not to try to talk her out of it rationally because um, it's not rational. And then the question is, I don't know anything about your uh, daughter, but um, in, in child psychiatry there's this term people use referring to the child as the identified patient, but the patient is actually the whole family system. So maybe before you get anybody to deal with any of this directly, maybe you tell her to find a decent family therapist who just 
and work a little bit with her. Plus, she's without a dad in the house, right? Mm -hmm. So that's a little bit of an imbalance. So maybe somebody who could understand if what I'm saying is right. Again, I see the shot. I can't fix everything, but yes, that would be one to encourage my daughter to see a family therapist. Yeah. Or a child therapist who might also work with mom. I, I, exactly. I agree. I, I have a difficult time, you know, people work with little kids and, um, I mean, yes, you're supposed to maintain confidentiality to a point, but children, I don't understand how you could actually treat a child without working in some way with the parents, because children just do not exist in a vacuum. Absolutely. Uh, and I've seen therapies go on and on, and the child does not get better, and you ask, and they, there has never been any interaction with the parents except to say, I can't talk about this, this is going to take time. Mm. So. Well, then to go back a minute to the function of, of your thoughts, just um, if you think of this in, in terms of the emotion as an energy that needs some outlet, she did not have an emotional outlet, so where is it going to go? To, up into her head, where she seems quite bright, and, and where she can easily think things. Her thinking isn't blocked, and that's where it's going to go. And once you drain off the emotions, it drains the energy out of the thoughts. I and mean, it's really so beautiful. It's a, such a beautiful case that illustrates it so simply and clearly. And that's why. Dr. Um, Rosen alluded to it, but why it's crucial to understand is this a psychotic child who has schizophrenia or is this a child with a neurotic problem? Because if it's a psychotic problem, just doing what he did would not have uh, had such you know, quick effect, I don't believe. Well, I think it might have made things worse to yeah. stir up more of that. So you've got to understand the, the uh, patient that you're dealing with. And I think, you know, that seemed very clear to you and you did a great job of just knowing what she's about, not getting caught up in the symptoms. God, this sounds crazy, this sounds psychotic, because as somebody said, she would have been maybe put on psychotropic drugs to block those symptoms and that would have been uh, sort of um, assigning her to a, a life of, of emotional problems. Again, it's a wonderful case in uh, Dr. Rosen, I'm wondering at, at what point did you have the intuition that the little brother was a, a big factor in this? When she told me. <laughs> I would routinely ask anyone who, any child, any adult, who had thoughts that couldn't stop and that were torturing them about violence being done. I would ask them routinely, anybody you're angry at? Anybody bothering you? Anybody making life difficult for you? So she told me. And the one person asked me uh, after this was published, didn't you think that the child should have ongoing treatment? Didn't you think it was necessary? Uh, and I tell you, I did not, because it was, it's very much, because she's actually pretty healthy, 
And it would be sort of brilliant thing she thought up. It, I mean, without realizing she was doing it. And it sort of reminds me of a stream that's flowing and it gets gummed up with flotsam and, and leaves and, and uh, twigs and stuff. And if you start removing them one at a time, there's a point where you've just taken enough away that the push of the stream will just wash the rest away and it will just reassert itself. And that's exactly what happened with her. Um, I mean, I certainly did counsel the parents. If anything like this returns, you can always come back. It's an open door. But um, I felt from the first time I met her that she had an immense amount of health in her. I tried to show in this the stepwise progression. And this actually is a bit faster than it actually went. And then I actually um, acted with her. But when, when you, you know, take one step in the water like this, you see what happens, and then you up the ante, and then you see what happens, and if, if there's something there, like psychosis, suddenly you might find it after the second or third step. But you're watchful, you're very careful, and then you're going to pull back, and you never make a move without knowing in your own mind right. that... If this goes south, I think it's how this is how it could go south, and this is exactly what I do. So one has to be prepared, and I could be foolhardy to just jump in without having some sense of that. Mm-hmm. But psychotic children, uh, schizophrenic children, can be uh, very charming mm-hmm. and can be very sweet mm-hmm. and come back and look just fine, mm-hmm. and then not. So it's a tough one. John, to say about that and what you were saying and what you're talking about, um, part of our training as as ergonomists is understanding the layers of the person's emotional structure. So a child who is fragile on the surface but actually strong and healthy underneath, like this girl, sort of not fragile but timid on the surface, uh, is, is very different than a kid who is fragile underneath that may be tough on the surface. So a kid like like this, if you did it for her, like bringing the, the brother in, um, would actually be undermining her health. Right. And, and what Dr. Rosen did was absolutely trust that she could handle it, which supported her health, and, and then she developed genuine confidence, I can deal with this on my own. As opposed to another child, you know, a schizophrenic child might look um, strong on the surface, but fragile underneath. If you force them to do that, they could fall apart. Okay. And that's what just what Dr. Rosen is saying can't be emphasized enough. You need to take your time, feel who you're dealing with, what the layers of their emotional structure are. And with each step forward she made, when she would first come out with anything, she would just contract down like this. And the respiration would change the, the whole picture. Uh, and each time I had a little feeling of what's going to happen. But the fact that she rebounded by the end of the session and could walk out and be, look relieved and look better, and her gait was better, and her, her being like this, it, it all started to go away. But if you see that stuff, these are signs. If you see that stuff mm-hmm. worsening, 
one has to pay really close attention. All right, let's get pizza. <laughs> This really was a remarkable case, and the discussion was spot on. What stood out to me was how it painted a picture of the layering of someone's emotional life. Anna could express her fears and anxiety, but not her rage and aggression. What do you think about Dr. Rosen's treatment of young Anna? Did anything in the discussion stand out to you? Are there any questions you had which went unasked? You can click on the link in the show notes to send us your questions. We are interested in your comments and other feedback. If you like our work, be sure to subscribe and share with a friend. Don't miss our next episode, which features something very special. Have you ever wondered what happens behind closed doors when two psychiatrists are talking about a patient? You'll be in the room with two medical ergonomists during a mentoring session discussing the therapy of patients. You'll get an inside view of how the ACO doctors look at their patients and approach treatment. But what you're describing, I mean, I, th- I think the shame is just absolutely key with her. That makes her hold back. I mean, you know, as we said, guilt makes people want to confess. Shame, shame makes them want to hide, and so she keeps hiding what she's really feeling underneath. Yeah. Well, one of the things you said to me before when we've talked about her is, don't chase someone with a, char- a hysterical character. Right. right. So, if her tendency, if someone's tendency is to run away, you're not going to help by chasing after them. Since 1968, the psychiatrists affiliated with the American College of Ergonomy have been helping patients discover greater satisfaction, health, and overall well-being in their lives. Whether patients suffer with mental illness, struggle with addiction, or feel unsatisfied with their work lives or relationships, medical organ therapy, as practiced by the physicians at the ACO, offers a way forward, often without the use of medication. I'm Dr. Chris Burrett. Thank you for listening to In Contact with the ACO.